TL Talk Radio, Season 4, Episode 13. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 13 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihetten and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihetten. Good morning, Randy. Hello, Lynn. So today we're speaking with Dr. Richard Bernardo, author of Futures-Based Change Leadership. Dr. Bernardo, who currently serves as an associate professor in the Department of Administrative and Instructional Leadership at St. John's University, has been deeply involved in the work of education for over 40 years. His dignified educational career began when he worked as a social studies teacher who ran his school's um, honors society and Dungeons and Dragons programs while also coaching that football team. It was during those years as a teacher that Dr. Bernardo became known for bringing education to life for his students through the use of educational simulations that allowed those students to put themselves in the shoes of the historical figures they studied. Along the way, he worked as an elementary school principal for many years, and eventually Dr. Bernardo served as the assistant superintendent of the very district where he began as a social studies teacher. Well, quite a bio there, Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I, I I didn't know that you knew all those things about me. I don't know, I'm not even sure where you found them, but that's glad <laughs> you didn't find some other things. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons, huh? Oh, that's the we could do a podcast on that all by itself. I remember the Dungeons and Dragons era. <laughs> Sheldon Cooper brought that back to life with the Big Bang. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I think they make up their own rules as they go, though. <laughs> uh, again, that would be a, a podcast all by itself. All right. Well, we'll put that in the back of our mind, maybe for yeah. future. Feel free. So today we're looking forward to chatting with you about your book, Future-Based Change Leadership. So to start our conversation off, give us a little bit of background on the book and what drove you um, to write this, and why is it an important, important uh, mentor text for our leaders? Yeah, dropping all the way back, I think the simulation uh, design uh, and methodologies that I met, that uh, uh, Lynn mentioned uh, a few minutes back was certainly uh, probably probably part of this. I think I've always been involved with uh, that kind of experiential uh, learning and, and featuring decision-making approaches as a teacher, as an instructor in my social studies uh, courses, which clearly social studies lends itself uh, to uh, quite well. Uh, and along the way, way back before both of you were born, I, I uh, fell into a curriculum writing project in a, in a regional uh, uh, curriculum prog- uh, project, uh, I forget how many years back, which was about futuring. I had never heard of the word as such, but you know, quickly uh, recognized it as part of what my soul was all about. And so uh, I wrote a couple of curricula uh, and taught several courses about futuring with students along those lines. And as I began to uh, enter the leadership field in my own district, uh, it always kept coming back to me and ringing my bell as uh, as, as the premise that uh, was kind of missing. It was there in a natural state, but not necessarily there in a, in a conscious state so much. And I really felt the need to do that. And then if you go look back, and I don't need to uh, uh, beat this drum that loudly, everyone here uh, who's listening and certainly uh, you too, as uh, leaders of a very dynamic district, as I understand it, uh, recognize that we're living in turbulent times, not only educationally, but uh, economically, politically, and a whole host of other ways. 
Uh, and education certainly has been rocked by a lot of that. Uh, and some of it was deserved, I think, in terms of what we have done and or not done. And as I began to look at this in terms of my own research and in terms of my own getting my own doctorate done uh, quite a few years back and in uh, my own instincts and in working with, uh, with uh, teachers and stakeholders, I began to realize that what was missing, and again, when I say missing, I use it in air quotes in the sense that it wasn't that it wasn't there, it was that it wasn't consciously, assistant, systematically, systemically uh, approached. So uh, pulling those, that premise together, uh, actually about, I guess about two years ago, I, I'm not sure if you have ever heard of Otto Scharmer. I have a feeling that you have, because I'm looking at you. As I look at your, uh, your website and your newsletter, it seems to me that uh, a lot of what you do smacks of the theory you process, the letter you process, for those who aren't familiar with uh, Schwammer's book or books. Uh, I literally sat down one day and said, you know, well, what is my purpose? And then when, when I got drilled down a little that much more, I began to realize I have to write a book about futuring and futures-based change leadership where I would accent the premise that there's really two major dimensions to speak about. And one would be, uh, you know, and you, you use that word a lot in, in your uh, newsletter, I noticed, uh, the word to build capacity among stakeholders and among uh, leaders, uh, which we all know about. It's not, that's not anything particularly new. Uh, however, it has to be uh, infused, embedded with the premise of conscious futuring, which is a, a gerund slash noun slash verb uh, for a whole host of other things I guess we'll get to later. So this whole idea of uh, futures is is interesting to us too because it seems like in education we're so focused on the immediate and the short term in the future, but is anybody really thinking out long term? And you know, if we are, we ask the question here, if we're going to prepare our kindergartners, our incoming kindergartners to go out into the world and be successful in the year 2030. Yes. What's that going to look like? And, oh, yes, yes, yes. And, yeah, I'm sorry. And how do we predict that? And do we predict it? And if we can't predict it, then what are the things that we should be focusing on? Yeah. Well, the first you raise, I could respond to that in any number of ways. Uh, I remember when I first became principal, again, back before both of you were born, I remember meeting my, with my, I was in an elementary building and uh, I had my kindergarten parents come in with, the, with their children, their kindergarten children. And I said to them, well, I'll see you. And I think it was 2003, they were going to be graduating from high school. And I we'll said, we'll see how different the world actually is. And the same premise applies for 2030 in terms of how you, you see it. And then forgive the term I'm going to use and edit it out if you want, but I, I think for the most part, educators are lousy futurists. I don't think I don't think we've been trained to be futurists, and I don't think that we uh, the organization and the uh, imposed on us and the organizations that we are victims to particularly uh, lend themselves to to real futuring. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know how it works in uh, in your state, but. Uh, being from New York, uh, and I, I imagine it's probably fairly true for most places around the country. Uh, you, maybe the most, maybe the best example of futuring, again, in air quotes, is you get to do an annual budget. And so you're a year out <laughs> and saying, okay, I'm going to put X number of monies in, in this code or that code to do this, that, and the other thing. But in terms of, you know, budgeting out for and I don't want to make this into an economic thing all, all that much, but if we're talking about budgeting out 
uh, 5, 10, 20 years out to 2030, in your example, uh, we're not really held to dance for that. We're just not. And then uh, I, I think the mindset, too, not only of, of uh, we as educators, of us as educators, but also of constituents we serve aren't particularly schooled to be uh, futurists either, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Maybe the best example, uh, and I'm just going neutral on this, but maybe the best example is every November you vote for somebody who you think is going to deliver what you think the future, what you think the future is that you prefer. And then most people probably forget as quickly as the, as, as the next election, whether that futuring future has been even remotely uh, spoken to. There's a great book I don't have in front of me, um, Teaching About the F- Tomorrow by, uh, I'll send you the email on who this is. I'm pretty sure it's Kaufman. Uh, we could add that to our show notes. Yeah, I'll, I'll email it to you at, um, where I run into my into my office and go find it for you. But uh, Teaching About Tomorrow, and the book's probably written in the late 80s. Uh, and he makes the point about how culturally different um, uh, different cultures, Ameri- uh, countries, cultures have different attitudes about the future. And there are some that are very immediate and some that are very long term. In the United States, uh, for the most part, uh, is uh, I would accuse it of being very short term and very and very immediate. And we don't particularly think that that far down the road. We pretend to, but we don't. You know, and I teach a course about uh, uh, planning and change at St. John's. Uh, I, I try out the list of you know future jobs, and and uh, there's any number of lists that are like that, uh, and most of the jobs uh, don't exist yet, and yet somehow or another schools are supposed to prepare students for jobs that we haven't been able to uh, foresee, mm-hmm. and and we can't be uh, necessarily uh, tapped on the wrist for that. However, if we're not preparing students to uh, in a wider, in a, a wider and a deepest sense, to have the you know the kinds of skills uh, and competencies and dispositions, which I think we often forget about, to um, be able to uh, take a job that we haven't thought of yet, that's great. I had my five-year-old grandson here yesterday. He was sick, and he told told me he was going to be an astronaut astronaut scientist, <laughs> and I said. He definitely can be that. He certainly can. I said, I said, what do you need to do to do that? And he looked at me. He said, well, I got to read a lot. So okay. Mm-hmm. All right, that's futuring for that, for that sake. But on the whole, what are, how, are, how are we as educators? Uh, uh, futurists? I don't think very well. Maybe, the, uh, maybe a better example, perhaps, is, uh, and it's, just, uh, it's not a silly one, but it's a kind of, in a certain sense, it's a minor one, although I think some people would disagree with me. An IEP for a child, individual educational plan for a child, is, a, is a, an attempt at futuring you know, strategies to help a child in need to become, uh, to um, overcome uh, whatever deficits they may have in order to, to be a successful student. Mm-hmm. But there's not a whole lot of things you can point to. No, you can, you can, again, in New York, I know we, have, we require technology plans every five years. And you know, I, I've, been, I've led those meetings and been part of those meetings where people say, well, okay, we need five, you know, five more laptops here and six more uh, Chromebooks over there. And why we need them and what we tend to have happen with, those, with them uh, is uh, as good as the paper that it's written on. Because the disposition is not embedded into the cultural practices of the, of the district. 
So let's take this gap that we've identified here and dig into your book and see what ways uh, our listeners, our leaders might uh, bridge that gap. Okay. Um, Well, they need to understand the formula, I think, Mm -hmm. if you don't mind me going back to that. Yeah, let's talk about the formula for futures-based change leadership that you um, begin to share early on in your book. Okay, I am not not a math person as such, so and I'm not sure why I came up with a, an arithmetic equation for a formula, but uh, that popped out of uh, my thinking uh, and some, actually some of my conversations with, with some of my doctoral students. So going with the premise that a denominator is the whole with a W, and that the denominator is, uh, strength of the denominator is tempered by the numerator. So three over eight would, is weaker than four over eight, if we can come at it from that point of view, I, I came up with the premise that uh, the, a futures-based change leader would be have to be able to, and you use this word a lot, be able to uh, have a culture whose organizational structure uh, had the capacity to not only to change, but also to sustain that change. You know, too often we you have the changes du jour, and then the changes du jour leave with the superintendent uh, or assistant superintendent as they as as they change or move along. And so the cultural capacity to change really can, uh, consists of three parts. Uh, in no order, uh, one would be systems disciplines, per Peter Senge. Uh, you know, I can do a whole dip podcast on that if you want down the line. Uh, plus the theory you, which we talked about a little bit already, plus uh, collaborative leadership practices. Those three premises together become the cultural capacity to change. Uh, All is well and good with that. However, the numerator, the one that would temper the strength of that or the success of that is futuring practices. Now, futuring practices are can be broadly interpreted lots of ways, but I, uh, for the sake of the conversation today, I'll try to simplify it to the dispositions about futuring, uh, the skills associated with, with futuring, and there are some specific skills that uh, you can train a faculty or, or, or any of your stakeholders, even your students, uh, to use uh, to a future more properly. And uh, the competencies to go along with that to make that all come to come together. Futures-based change leadership is organizational capacity to change, tempered by the strength of the numerator, which would be its ability to future. So let's dive into one of those components: the collaborative leadership practices. And you talk That's, about yeah. that in in chapter three. So why is it important for us to consider uh, collaborative leadership practices? Yeah, I did my original, my own dissertation research on, on uh, shared decision-making practices, and this is uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, I'll give you a phrase. I think it's in the book. Yes, it is in the book. It's not an original one, and I couldn't find the uh, whom to attribute it. Uh, some say it was um, Blanchard, but some say it was the Japanese proverb. And the phrase is, none of us is, is as smart as all of us. And that sounds very cute. Except it isn't really true, because sometimes groups are not very smart together, mm-hmm. don't know how to be smart together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so while it sounds 
kind of politically correct to say, well, we're going to flatten our leadership and we're going to engage all stakeholders to contribute to the to the health of the whole. Uh, all well and good, assuming that this certain variables or factors are, are present. Um, and a lot of times they're not. Uh, the model that I used in the, my dissertation was uh, the high involvement model. Uh, Priscilla Wolstetter, W. O-H-L-S-T-E-T-T-E-R is the primary, I think, uh, proponent of it. I think Alan Oden probably, Arden would probably be a, maybe a better place to turn to. But basically what they said is, is that if I want a group to be highly engaged, highly involved, the six factors have to be, have to be in place. And I'm not going to you know, walk you through the whole laundry list of that, but the three major factors are uh, knowledge, I'm sorry, power, uh, knowledge and information, just others, and may drop into um, in a moment. But those are the three, by research, the, the three strongest. When you look at uh, the characteristics of uh, highly effective schools, look at the characteristics of blue ribbon schools, and pretty much any school that's been a recognizer or P21 schools, which I got to mention earlier when we're talking about futuring, uh, they all. Uh, practice versions of high engagement or high involvement, if, if you look at them more closely. And the power premise is easy enough to understand, which is to say uh, that, you know, you as the leadership of the district can form a group and say, yes, you're in charge of uh, formulating uh, an action plan for your building. And then if they were to come back and say, well, we know what we want to do. We want to uh, dissolve the building and turn it into uh, a charter school. You might turn around and say, uh, I don't think so. Like, yeah, I didn't give you that kind of power. And the moment you do that, uh, that's the end of the high engagement premise in that building. Not because you, you didn't have the, the correct right as a superintendent, an assistant superintendent to say, no, I didn't give you that kind of authority. Premise would be that you didn't tell them in advance where their authority limits were and were not. And that's typically why a lot of schools, uh, a lot of stakeholder groups thinks collapse when, when there's power conflicts uh, between the principal and those kinds of groups, mm -hmm. or between the superintendents and those kinds of groups. That's a typical issue to speak about. Uh, but in this case, the more important one in terms of where we're taking the book, it would be um, the knowledge piece. And the knowledge piece is a complicated premise to get into, but if we're coming from the idea of uh, none of us is as smart as all of us, then we need to be sure that they've got the skills to, uh, to be as smart together as they can be, or maybe even smarter as a group than they were individually in total. So uh, there's two components to that. One would be uh, human relationships premise. You and I and anyone's ever been in a group in a school planning or any organizational planning, you know that there are times when they, then the human relationships premise collapses uh, Patrick Lencioni speaks about that very nicely in his book, uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I recommend that book for your, anybody you're going to use in terms of your own collaborative leadership practices. Essentially, he goes with trust as the number one issue, but there's others. Uh, when groups lack trust, they're not able to, uh, there's the dysfunction and the group cannot uh, be effective. So that's the one part of the knowledge piece. And the other part of the piece is to have the skills to do whatever it is they've been charged to do. So on a minor level, if I can be so bold as to call it minor, if you charge a team with uh, picking the next social studies textbook in 11th grade, you, you hope that they know 
what it was, what it is they need to know in order to pick the best textbook. And if they don't, then the books, the, uh, the book that they choose, if they choose one, won't be the best book for what the children need. Uh, but it goes deeper with that when we talk about the futuring premise, when in fact most groups instinctively know how to future. I can say to you what will happen tomorrow if you if your or your buses uh, uh, run out of gas. You can tell me what would happen tomorrow, what, what that would mean, mm-hmm. and you would t- be able to tell me what you would do about it. Hopefully, that wouldn't happen because you don't want that to happen. But uh, when we, if we're talking about real futuring, they really just there's actually three types of futuring strategies, two basic types and one more evolved uh, uh, approach, much more complicated approach that the book speaks to uh, that you would need to, to uh, embed into your, uh, any of your uh, participant groups skill sets in order for them to have the knowledge to, to uh, be effective uh, as a group and to be uh, actually plan out what the future might be, what, it, what they think their preferable futures might be. Mm-hmm. I make the distinction of uh, the three Ps when it comes to futuring. Now it would be a possible, probable, and, and preferable. Most anything is possible. Pigs can maybe be able to fly up the road. Fewer things are probable. And for the most part, I speak about probable futures. Uh, when I we talk about futuring with uh, stakeholder groups and building organizations, uh, but the third P is the more imp- most important one, and that would be uh, preferable futures. Mm-hmm. What do you want to happen? What do you what do you not want to happen? So we shared with you our profile of a graduate and learning mm-hmm. beliefs, and talked a little bit about that um, before we got started here this morning. And to realize this vision, we know that we need to shift our mindsets and build skill sets, the knowledge that you're talking about. Um, and also dispositions, and um, this is going to cause much, much change for us. So what do you mean by organizational, cultural capacity to change, and how can we as leaders help to develop the capacity for change? Yeah, the book has a checklist for, uh, for how to diagnose, diagnose that, but the simple word is that you, need to, you need to be clear, and, they, and the group needs to be clear on you know, what their basic assumptions and beliefs are. Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with Edgar Schein, S-C-H-E-I-N. Uh, you know, laughing. Uh, Shine is. Uh, I have a poster of Shine in, uh, in my office. He's <laughs> my hero, uh, and I use him in my coursework a lot. Uh, basically, if, if people don't know, I, I did a, a consult in, an, uh, in a place. I won't say the island, but it's an island way out in the Long Island Sound, that's closer to uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, than it is to New York, but is part of New York. Very small island. It's maybe two miles square. It, uh, billionaires live there in the in the nice months, and their servants live there year round. And I think the whole district is maybe 120 students. So I was invited to go out there to do a futuring uh, consult with them, and I had emailed the uh, the, print, the superintendent and the staff and said, "Would you please bring in artifacts that represent what you think the culture of, of your district is?" Uh, and they brought in the usual things: policy books and memos and pictures of students. One fella brought in uh, a lobster claw that was as big as a desk. You'll never see a bigger lobster claw that as big as that ever. So he kind of threw me for a minute, and we spent three hours trying to parse what the lobster claw represented to him and to the building in terms of the cultural practice, practices and the basic assumptions and beliefs about that 
history. And basically what we came up with, well, he had caught the lobster uh, uh, skin diving, scuba diving off, off the island's uh, shore. And uh, when we got to everything was boiled down to, uh, we all realized that it was an island district, that the district expect the children, the expectation of most of the children there, of the, of the parents of most of the children, and apparently of the faculty, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting mm-hmm. saying, uh, was uh, it's an island. And many folks did expectations of, the, of, of what was necessary was to give them a, uh, a good, sound high school rep- uh, uh, education and impel them to go on to higher education or island. However, breaking that, that cultural assumption in the island was uh, going to be difficult because historically most of the children who uh, went to school there may have gone off island to go to school for further education, but many came back and that was a troublesome thing issue for that, for that group. And so we, we, we had to peel all the way back down to it was an island, and that was the mentality. And I don't know your district, but this, if you if you've taken haven't done this already, if you've taken the time to understand the cult, the basic assumptions that are so deeply ingrained uh, in in the soul of a group of a group as a whole with a W, uh, that's got to be pressed to the surface before you can do much of anything else. Mm-hmm. Unanimity, unanimity of uh, of. Um, understanding what that's about. So that's the first premise. And you need to, uh, and that you can't do that in an hour. That's something that has to be done uh, in a retreat fashion or, or of, course, uh, of course, a couple of other kinds of activities to make that happen. Uh, you know, once you do that, then you can begin to uh, introduce some of those type one. Uh, you did a great job with that from what I can tell, uh, on, if I understand your processes correctly. You know, type one information gathering activities where, you know, and the word is what it sounds like. You need to make, ensure that uh, everyone's got a, their arms around the whole elephant in terms of, in your case, you know, what is Allentown about? What's, what's the economy of Allentown? What are the skill sets that uh, employ? You know, I don't need to tell you these things. You know these already. Uh, and what are, what are the, the trends and the issues that are affecting uh, the ability of uh, the community to support what you want to do? And again, you uh, I see panel discussions there. I see field trips. I see uh, expert uh, expert um, uh, presentations, and I see a lot of conversation. And again, again if you go back to the skill set of, of the Wallsteader model, uh, it's because people talk about things doesn't mean they know how to, to talk to truly you know, dialogue about things. To use a Senge word, and so you know, the, the facilitators have to be sure that. People just aren't doing I thinks so much as they're truly boiling down and distilling what lies beneath. Uh, so that's type one. And type two, the book uh, actually, I deliberately only put two uh, basic type two strategies in there. Uh, when I rewrite the book, I'm going to add more. But type two activities are what I call two dimensional if then activities. I can't think of a, of, a, of a great example of this, but if someone punches you in the nose and your nose bleeds, you might say, someone will say, well, why is your nose bleeding? And the answer is, well, this person punched me in the nose. If I didn't get punched in the nose, my nose wouldn't be bleeding. That's a terrible example, but it's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> educationally, if, for example, this is more complicated. I, I was uh, deeply involved in this when I was assistant superintendent. 
if you go from half day K to full day K, there's a whole lot of thens that emerge out of the, the change from half day to full day. And some people in my district say, well, it'll just take care of itself, in which I steadfastly refuse to uh, accept. And thankfully, the, the group as a critical mass began to realize it wasn't just a matter of eating, you know, two or three hours to the day. It was a matter of, you know, restructuring all of what you do to assure that the full decay would have impact, right kind of impact on the subsequent grades. And I'm sure you're aware of that. That's, that's an if then. Mm-hmm. What are the possible, probable, and, future, and preferable futures that emerge when I look at a potential new future? The book explains how to do this better than I'm going to do it now. But it's not a, it's not a brainstorm. It's not as though you can say, well, the Martians will land and we'll all have to run away from them. It's a, it's really grounded in your type one activities. You know, the more information and the knowledge that they have about, you know, the, the whole or the W with their environment, the more likely that the if thens are going to be uh, uh, clearer, crisper, and more uh, right on. And then what I usually do is I say to a group, are you telling me what you think the probables are from the, all of these possibles? And they'll argue about that. And I'll look for some consensus about that, depending on my time frame. And then I will uh, also say, okay, well, let's, let's kind of generate a tentative, a tentative uh, consensus about uh, what you prefer to happen or not to happen. Uh, I just kind of just, I just get that acorn on the ground. I don't particularly want to nurture it all so much yet. And that leads to a cross impact matrix uh, strategy, which is also uh, in the book and more clearly described there. Um, that uh, is really a fancy word for a chart. And you, you've used these before, I'm sure, in different ways. And so if I said, well, if I'm going to go from half day K to full day K, what are the three most likely, what are the, what are the probable futures to emerge from that? And whatever they are, you run down the X axis, I'm sorry, the Y axis. And then um, the next place would be to say, okay, well, who, why, and who and what might be affected, impacted by that, by those probable futures? You know, the obvious ones pop right out, you know, the children, uh, the community, the board, the leadership, teachers, uh, the union, which is sometimes to uh, separate from teachers. Uh, but you know, depending on the issue, I mean, you can put any, any, any number, the environment, the economy, uh, the community, whatever you think might be. For example, when we went from half day K to full day K, uh, we had a revolt in one part of the district because the, the timing of the, of the, uh, Schedule changes was seriously affect after school activities, and the community was that part of the community was not happy, and we didn't we didn't spot that until we ran a cross impact matrix to identify these these new probables that might kick out. So once I and there's ways to weight this. There's a lot of ways you can approach this. Uh, some of them have some websites that you can look at in the book that can uh, depending on the time frame. Uh, and when I speak of time frame, I, I don't want to feel that you, I think you know this, uh, you can't rush this. People have to kind of marinate through this. Take your time. Uh, even if there's a gun between your eyes from a board saying, I want this tomorrow. And, you know, involve them in this too and say, you know, see how this process is unfolding. You can't uh, do this in an afternoon. So what will happen is, uh, 
you'll begin to squeeze the futures wheel, the first strategy, over to the cross-impact matrix. Now you begin to come up with a, a body or uh, a pot of probables that appear to uh, influence what the preferables are going to be. And that would lead to scenario development and some other three-dimensional premises. And that's a great segue because that's what our next question was. Let's jump ahead to the idea of type three, transformational scenario planning. Give us a snapshot of what this is and how we as leaders might uh, engage this in terms of this, this edu-featuring process. Yeah, I have to tell you, it's something I, uh, I, I instinctively knew about, but didn't uh, uh, concretely know about till I tripped across a book by Adam Kahane, K-A-H-A-N-E. And uh, Kahane uh, speaks of uh, books called Transformative Scenario Planning. Highly recommended, absolutely highly recommended. He does a lot of YouTubes uh, as well that you can take a look at. Uh, the book is not about education. And the book describes Kahane's experiences in literally in global affairs. He was involved, for example, in uh, the South Africa transformation away from apartheid. He was involved in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, issues along the way. Oh, he doesn't write about schooling as such. I'm, I'm translating and transforming his transformative scenario planning book uh, to, to that. Uh, briefly, it's hard to do this briefly. Uh, briefly, uh, you've come through type one and you come through type two. Type three, the three-dimensional approach, uh, obviously is multidimensional, where the type two might also be multidimensional. Type three solidifies that and gives you more uh, uh, facets of the issues that you're looking at to, to uh, strategically plan for. I, I use the wrong word to uh, consider as possible premises to look at. In fact, I'm going to leapfrog over to, uh, off over transformative planning for a minute. Say that the outcome of scenario transformative scenario planning with, are, are two levels. One is uh, organic, and one is inorganic. Inorganic is what I've consulted about for many years before I realized uh, it isn't the best way to, to fly. In other words, uh, we can all say our goal for 2020 or 24 is A, B, C, D, E. Uh, and that's fine. You write it in a box and uh, you wrap it around your vision and you hope that people have held hands and embraced it uh, spiritually and consciously. And that's great. Nothing wrong with that. And then we come up with what are the strategies to enact this goal next year and what are the strategies to piggyback off that the following year and so forth. I call that the inorganic approach. Much like, uh, I know we have an assistant superintendent of a curriculum here, much like when we say, uh, okay, let's write a, let's write a uh, curriculum for uh, global studies. And, the, and teach sets of teachers write, sit down and write a content curriculum for, for this and for that. And then when you go in to observe that, then they're not teaching the French Revolution the way the curriculum guidance uh, may have described it because that's the organic way individuals, professionals especially, choose to approach the issue. And so the organic planning premise is much more sloppy. And you mentioned the word messy, I think, in your newsletter, if I remember right. So I applaud that. With, uh, as a result of the sum 
the SUM of having engaged in the transformative scenario process, you not only have an, or, an inorganic plan that you try to adhere to as best you can, but you also have a, an, an organic uh, sets of consequences that are results of the spirit of the, what you were trying to do. And those kinds of things can't be measured in from a box as a criteria of uh, measurement that a board of education might want to say. Those are things like, you know, whether your faculty is talking about what they're doing in the faculty room rather than having a cup of coffee and talking about uh, baseball, whatever else. Not that there's anything wrong with that as such, uh, but the inorganic, rather the organic actions and activities, you know, some of having engaged in the, in the transformative scenario planning process far outweigh the, the uh, so-called successes of what the inorganic plan would necessarily point out. None of you was old enough to remember uh, our gang comedy or uh, Judy Garland movies from the 40s. There was always a movie, I think, it was, I think it was one in the 50s with Danny Kaye and Bing Crosby, uh, White Christmas, where the, the general is going to lose his, uh, uh, his hotel or his inn because he's running out of money. And Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye say, I have a good idea. Let's put it on a show. And they pick up the phone and they call all their friends and all these actors and actresses you know, show up at the, at the inn and they put on this great show and save the, the general's uh, uh, inn. And all is, all is well and everybody gets married and, and all the rest of those good things. Well, that's an example of, in, of organic processes where everyone just kind of coalesced and twisted their energies together to collaborate for the whole with the W. You can't put that in a box and plan that. Those things evolve from the sum of the spirit and the commitment. That's why I advocate theory U, which we won't be talking about, I guess, so much today, but you need to look at that book. Although I think you have actually captured an awful lot of that book. So uh, an awful lot of it with the theory U processes uh, uh, energize energized, uh, the collaborative leadership practices dependent upon the systems, uh, disciplines, uh, health existence in, in the organization. So to come back to scenario planning, uh, it's a process. You get it, and I'm going through it uh, kind of quickly, but you're gonna get a group together, a cross section of your district or of your, of your building. You're going to choose them carefully. Uh, mo most importantly, you're going to um, very clearly help them understand their role, going back to the Wallstetter model to some extent, uh, and their role in terms of the third issue of Wallstetter I didn't address earlier, which would be uh, their obligation to uh, inform the group whom they're representing and to take that input back to the group as a whole uh, for uh, additional conversation. Uh, we've all been part of groups where you represented you know, grade six and then you didn't particularly go back to a grade six, rest of your grade six colleagues and tell them what happened. Or they may have turned around and said, well, we don't like what you're talking about. Can you bring that back? And, and you don't. So a big role of ROLE of, uh, of a member of a, what I call a strategic planning council uh, would be that they have to both inform and be informed by, by their constituents. Very important. So once you pull those together, uh, you're going to uh, 
and you've already done this, but though you can't do it enough times, you're going to uh, um, immerse your group in type one activities. Sometimes I think I do too many of those, but I don't think you can do in certain I don't, think, I don't think you can either. <laughs> uh, immerse them in type one activities and then uh, train them in type two activities. Now the, the two I mentioned from the book were uh, uh, futures wheels and cross impact matrices. There are other ones, but those are just the two. That I, I, and they need to be done together. You can't do one without the other, I think. Futures so, wheels leads to cross impact. So this whole idea of thinking about the future uh, is pretty complicated, pretty complex. Which is why we don't do it. Which is why we don't do it. Yeah, that's a re that's a really good point. Have you? Excuse me. Have you read a book? Thinking fast, thinking slow. That's a a Daniel Kahneman. Kahneman. Yeah. Yes. Well, he talks about that. Yeah. It's much, the type one pro the thinking and the type two. And type one is you know, who discovered America in 1492. That's easy. But type two is did Columbus really discover America? Is a is a type two kind of question. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it makes our hair hurt when we have to do type two processes. And you can see my hair. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> is, 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 I've lost a lot of hair. I'm thinking about Well, thank you so much for sharing that um, quick. Uh, too quick, as you would say, um, too quick, way too review quick. of the transformative scenario planning. Um, let's wrap this up by asking you one final question. You know, what's next for you, Richard? What are you working on right now? Yeah, I wish we had done more. I talked too much about uh, without getting to how to do scenario planning. So the chapter explains it much better than I just did. Uh, oh, wow. I want to refine the book. I want to add to it. I want to um, add more uh, type two activities. Uh, I'd like to continue consulting and using it in my coursework. I like to do research about uh, theory U practices and, and scenario planner. Have some really good dissertations. Uh, one of them is completed really good about scenario planning that, that just, we just did. Um, I, well, I want to do a lot of writing. I'd like to write uh, for, about a, a Disney, and I would like to help my wife uh, prepare my grandchildren for their future. Hmm. And I thank you for uh, letting me ramble here. <laughs> thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thanks for being here, Richard. I hope it was helpful. Each episode will leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's questions. First, how can you or your districts start edu-futuring? And second, how would your district's vision shift if you engaged in intentional edu-futuring. If you're thinking about these questions, you can look at some of the resources in the show notes. Um, we linked the book and um, Richard's website. You can follow him on Twitter. Check him out on LinkedIn. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or access any of the resources that we mentioned during the episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season four, episode 13. That's all for now. We'll be back soon with another episode featuring another conversation with an innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Richard. Thank you. My pleasure. Very much my pleasure. Good luck to you. Bye-bye.